Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright, host of this show. We're looking at episode 171. This will be the second part in our series of germinal joust called Writing as Passion. And if you recall from the first installment, which was Writing as Priority, it was really more about the daily routines that will be necessary for someone who really makes writing as a priority. How to make it a priority so that you can be a productive writer. In this particular case, we're really going to be looking at artists that used writing as a passion because they had a, what we would call a singular pursuit. Oftentimes, these were writers and artists that got uh, got out one major project that really defined everything you know in music they call them the one hit wonders you know um you get that one song no matter what you do that's all people remember and they judge you by uh i know there's certain actors that they do the same thing they get typecast you know and then you try to do something else and it's hard to break out of it well in many instances for writing that's some of these people right here now it would be wrong to call this some kind of a loose um uh, famous authors who only did one novel because it's really not that at all in many cases they have done other things but they simply paled in compar- comparison to the major work that they did all right so i'm going to mention a few that that had that had died only because of what they did was a singular passion for them and we don't really know if they were going to go on to do other things or even something bigger or not because some of them died so it, some of them will fit this definition, but they all had that singular passion about what they were doing. It's just not all of them uh, live long enough to to enjoy it or, or to see it really come out in any kind of major fashion. Okay, I'm not really going to stick to the dates all that much because that's really not necessary to demonstrate these points. Okay, first one is a, a British writer by the name of Anna Sewell. Now she's very interesting in the sense that here is a writer that didn't start off writing. She actually started off in the more social political atmosphere where she went around with her mother in England in the 1800s and tried to help establish various working men's clubs. These are places where people can get together to learn how to get employment. It was, it was almost like a, a classier way to have a, a soup kitchen, you know, but they call it working men's club. It sounds better, I guess. She also worked a lot on the temperance movement in England. Uh, that was a movement that, you know, to ban alcohol, at least to keep it under control, and the abolitionist movement uh, so that people wouldn't be uh, discriminated because they were different races or colors or anything. You know, that wasn't only in America. It was, you know, all over the place. But she was a big part of that. Ironically, and, and this is what I find very unusual, but nevertheless... Um, here's a woman that wind up uh, contracting and living with and eventually dying from hepatitis. We don't have too many uh, writers, particularly women, no matter what century we're talking about, that had this disease and died. So it's a very good chance, 
and not trying to cause anybody to think negatively of the poor or the homeless or the people she's working with, but unfortunately, that was the crowd that contracted that more than anybody else. And there's a good chance since she intermingled with those people for years, it's a good chance she that's where she caught it at. She was the only one in the family that had it and the only one that died, the only writer I know that's ever died from it. So, un unusually so. So, she wound up becoming so sick that she's confined to her house for years at a time, okay? So, she winds up developing a passion for horses. And she believes that it's important for her to write a book that would demonstrate to people the, the utility of horses and, and the natural beauty of horses, how to take care of horses, how horses can be in their own way a sort of emotional, maybe even psychological um, a therapy for people. We learned this later on in, in the in the um, the 1950s onwards, where you got a lot of places, especially here in America, where they use horse farms to help rehabilitate kids with emotional problems or even uh, drug addicts and get them off of drugs and give them another perspective on life. And horses are a big part of this therapy. So I'm not sure if she's the first person that discovered this, but she's definitely one of the first writers to really put this down. She is the woman that wrote Black Beauty. It took her six years to write. It became an enormous bestseller for her. Uh, but she didn't live but five months afterwards before she died of hepatitis, uh, unfortunately. But it, it's an incredible book. And ironically, I, I'm from the city, okay? I'm, I've always told you that I'm the Sharma City kid. So, you know, I'm not a big person gravitated to animals in nature. I mean, I, I appreciate it when I got older. But, you know, when you're in the city, you know, I mean, what are the animals do you see? Cat, dog, uh, a roach, a fly, and a pigeon. That, I mean, that's really about it. Oh, yeah, and a squirrel in the park. You, you don't really see too many more beyond that. So horses was not in my vocabulary, was not something I see. More like something you might see on a TV show, especially a Western. That's the only time you've really seen horses. Although, whenever I visit New York, every so often you see a horse with a cop riding on it. And that was always a, a fun treat. And then, of course, you'll see a couple of them decorated in a, in a circus. But that was the only time I really saw any. Until I went to Germany and went to a farm. So my exposure and my experience and even my possible, I guess you could say, respect for horses really came from black beauty it was the first book i can really recall you know and then i know they did a tv show on it as well where it really uh lets you understand more about horses and, and how important they are how beautiful they are and, and of course how useful they can be in, in in human lives and of course you know you always want to be able to treat animals with respect and not believe that they should be treated poorly and that's really what that book showed a great deal about so that was one heck of a book and a, and a big uh, big one for her. We don't know, okay? I put her in here with a few others, and then we'll go on to the more classic ones that fit this description. I do know one thing. That was a passion of hers. It was a major belief of hers. It's what she dedicated the rest of her life to, and she wrote the rest of her life on that book and got it published and saw it published before she died. So she fits my category for that at least. We don't know if she would write other things afterwards because she died early. Um, but we uh, we do know that, um, and it, I don't know if this really tells you anything or not, but we know that she didn't leave any other manuscripts behind because I think she spent all her time writing this book and then it was done and she had to work on the, the business of getting it published. Um, so maybe she didn't have any time because she died so early to write another book. We don't know, but we do know that this is the only book that she wrote, and it's a timeless classic. It really is. Without sounding like a cliche, it truly is. I really think that people will go to space one day, and they'll be reading Black Beauty to their children. I mean, it's you know, it's right up there with Green Eggs and Ham, and 
you know, Dr. Seuss and all of that. It's just one of those important books. And even though it was supposed to be a, a children's book, a, a classic children's book, I, I see plenty of adults that appreciate it. Um, and quite frankly, when the TV show comes on, you have adults watching it just as well as with kids. So it, it really does cross the borders on, on, on the generational aspect of things, okay? Next, Emily Bronte, Wuthering Heights. All right, here is a, a woman that writes a book that's considered very controversial. It, it's very, uh, very uh, sexy, uh, almost scandalous type of love story, all right? It was considered passionate, violent, and sexual. <laughs> that's what they considered it back in uh, the 1840s, okay? And he was, she does this. Um, maybe she realizes that this coming from a woman is probably not going to fly too well. It's probably hard enough coming from a man, but there's probably a better of a chance. So she changed her name for this book and used the pseudonym of uh, Ellis Bell. So in many instances, people thought this was a man. It was still considered passionate and violent sexual. They gave it a little bit more of a pass, probably because they figured it's another weirdo like Desaad. So, okay, now we got one over here in Britain. <laughs> But nevertheless, it wasn't too long afterwards, after another printing, that they had found out that this is um, a woman. So they, they, they actually put her actual name on it. So it became a real scandalous thing from her. Only real book that she had, she had wrote before her herself died less than a, a year later of, uh, of cancer. So incredibly enough. And they didn't find any manuscripts from this woman as well. So nobody knows if she was going to be writing another book or not. Or if this was the only one. Uh, it definitely was something you would want to call passion. It was definitely a, a project for her. And um, unlike Mrs. Sewell from um, Black Beauty, who only became the, um, the recluse when she was having really poor health and had to be in her house, uh, Emily Bronte was always that way. She was just always somebody that was a, a recluse. Didn't really hang around with a lot of people and... You know, and kept a very private life. Well, I don't know how private it was because apparently this book probably tells you a whole lot of her life. So, you know, they say uh, be careful about those quiet ones, especially those quiet girls. I mean, because uh, in this case, uh, uh, Miss Bronte was a bit of a freak, no doubt about it. And she got her freak on in this book. No, that's, that's, <laughs> no doubt. Um, I definitely agree with anyone out there that say, you know, um, it's certainly unfair uh, uh, if she put a name on it at first as a woman. This would, might not even get published at all because it would say all kinds of bad names about her versus a guy. Yeah, but, you know, it's the 1800s. What the hell do you want, okay? Uh, she, she does something like this today. I don't even know if anyone would bat an eye. I mean, really. We got we got songs right now that are dirtier than this, this entire book. All right, so <laughs> it's kind of hard to, to look at it for today's day and age, but... Back then, this was a this is a doozy, right? It's considered a modern um, classic to this day, uh, and one of the few uh, books uh, from women that really explored uh, some of the subjects she did. It wasn't just um, the uh, the surface, you know, polite, you know, um, family atmosphere of love. This, this was like everything in the kitchen sink thrown in. So she went out with a bang. Excuse the the terminology here. Okay, all right, next. And this is a really interesting one here. Apparently, uh, there was a, um, a, a principality at the very southernmost part of Italy called uh, Lampedusa, okay? And it had its last prince by the name of Giuseppe Tomasi. 
Okay, he went as the name of Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa. If you remember, when we talked about on the um, the other show I did uh, about um, uh, writers, and um, some of them, when they say D something else, it meant that they uh, couldn't take their father's name because the father didn't bother to marry the mother, so they had to do D Lampedusa or D Vinci or, you know, etc. Well, in this case over here, he did have a, a, an official mother and father, and his name was Giuseppe Tomasi, but he, he lent in it to put D Lampedusa because that was his, his princely name. He was the last prince of, of Lampedusa, and he wrote, incredibly enough, a novel that eclipsed all the stuff that he had done. He had done a few other novels beforehand, but this was his passionate one. It explained a great deal about all what had happened during the Italian Civil War with Giuseppe the General and, and even how his area got you know, absorbed into that. And it's considered a modern classic and one of the greatest uh, novels ever written in Italy. It was called The Leopard, which ironically is funny because the, um, the term... Uh, Gato Pardo, which is an Italian word, it actually means American ocelot. It doesn't mean the leopard, but it got translated as the leopard, and that's how it's known for most of Europe and America. They don't know it as the American ocelot. They just know it as the leopard. It's funny because on the on the on the family of the Tomasis of Lampedusa, their coat of arms is actually an ocelot, but. Nevertheless, that's where you got it. It turns, that, turns out that symbol was very common because a lot of Sicilians who had money uh, owned a lot of exotic, exotic pets, and they would bring those over, some of them from Africa, some of them from America, and have them as a pet. I know, big, big thing that can eat you, but nevertheless. All right, so so it, the, whole, the whole story is really about uh, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, that's the general that united uh, the north and, and the south in, in the Civil War of Italy so for, the, for the Italian to become a, Italy to become a full country rather than all these nation states or like I said, the little kingdom down there. All right, so the troops begin in unification and the story is about an aristocratic Sicilian family. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Hmm. Yeah, some autobiographical stuff going on here. It grudgingly adapts to the sweeping social changes that ultimately undermine their way of life, which is mean that, you know, you don't get to be a prince anymore and keep all this land and all this other stuff. I mean, you only can do so much. Uh, he was the one that coined the phrase, uh, Mr. Uh, Tomasi, if we want things to stay as they are, things have to change. So it's a, a, an incredible um, quote from that book, and, and, and actually it's lived on forever now. Everybody knows that quote in literature. It's, it's really something else. It's really a, a political and, and a social statement amongst many other things. It really is because it's it's funny when you, you say that things stay the same because they're always changing, so they have to change. It's just it's it's uh, it's a real parallax. It really does. I, I like it. I like it a lot. All right, next one, and we're going to see this a lot in some of these other uh, listings we have here. But here's the first one we'll talk about about this uh, book. Uh, it's uh, I think it was like. 900 or 1,000 pages. It was up there with War and Peace. It's called The Confederacy of Dunces. It was by John Kennedy Toole, an American writer. Okay? So he writes this book, a very long novel. Okay? He goes everywhere to try to get it published. Everybody rejects it. He even, like, quits his job, tries to figure out, maybe if I market it better, maybe I do this and do that. That doesn't work really well. He falls through a deep depression. He commits suicide in 1969. Okay? The book, 11 years later, 
Now he doesn't get published because his mother keeps pushing it out there until it finally does. It goes on to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So we get a lot of that out there uh, with folks who, who are doing this, and you'll see this on this list, and it's just a sad sad fact of writers and, 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 and the pressure and the things they could be under. So it's it's nothing to quibble and laugh about. I certainly don't, but um, I'm not really uh, one of those folks that think uh, you know committing suicide is some kind of exotic or interesting thing to do. I don't even know how people get to that point. I really don't, and I've dealt with all kinds of people dealing with depression all my life and i still can't fathom why that would be the next step or the ultimate step or the solution step or it's hard to understand it truly is and of course it's a great strategy i would love to have seen them around uh confederacy of dunces is a really interesting book in the sense that he winds up taking all the different parts of America that he didn't agree with, that he felt the country could have been better, uh, matters about uh, anti-gay uh, life, matters of, of people being racist, and matters of people being feminist. Some of the just some of the horrible things that we were still going through in in America. You know, not to say that we're not going through those now, but we've we made a great and enormous strides compared to what he was writing about, even in the uh, the sixties uh, when he was putting his book together. Um, and that's really what the book was about. And uh, it's really a, 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 a classic. It's a hell of a book. It's long as heck. Don't get me wrong. And I guess if you're going to go out this way, this is the way to go with a, a super large book about your own country and things you, do, you think is silly and, and how they could be better and how the place can be better. Uh, again, it's, it's really a tragic irony that you have uh, people like John Kennedy Toole who can put together such projects and have this kind of vision of a better country, yet for some reason they can't translate that for a better life for themselves, and they wind up ending their life. The bigot didn't come and kill the person, and you know what I mean? The Klansmen didn't come and get Mr. Tool, and neither did uh, uh, phew, the people who hate women or, or, or the, the people that don't like gays. None of those people came for him. He came for him. And that's how that ended, unfortunately. But it's one hell of a book. You want to get a chance to check it out. It's a long book. I mean, it'll take you a while to read. But it's definitely worthwhile. It was definitely um, worthy of the of the Pulitzer Prize. And who knows if this man could have stuck around uh, the other work he could have been doing. Who knows? But then it's hard to know from a person that has those kind of pressures and, and those things that are going through their minds would he have lasted anyway you know in terms of keep writing if you still can't even get this book out and everything you felt was hinging on this that's that's the real problem over there and that's how we'll, we'll really never know all right let's go on some equally interesting ones all right margaret mitchell she wrote gone with the wind it was a big seller uh, even bigger when it became a movie, which is in itself another timeless classic, okay? It's, it's a story about a young girl who's struggling to survive the American South, okay? She won the Pulitzer Prize for it. Of course, it became a big, big movie. I mean, I remember it had that, like, that controversial ending in the 1930s for somebody to say damn is like, <laughs> it's unheard of. So it, it's, and it, and it definitely fit that. That's no doubt about it. <laughs> it fit that. Uh, Margaret Mitchell uh, did not write anything else and didn't care to write anything else. She stood away from publicity 
all that stuff. She simply did not care. She did write uh, uh, later on in her life, uh, which actually sold very well, uh, a novella called Lost Lason. But, uh, and, and then she did have a few other projects that were never published. It was the only book that she ever did publish. And it's a, a, you can definitely call it the time of the classic. Everybody has heard of the Gone with the Wind. I'm telling you. You got some sheep herders over in Africa that probably said, Gone with the Wind, yeah, I heard of that. So, I mean, that's that's how much universal it is. thing has been in, uh, translated in like a thousand languages or something. So, it, it's incredible as a, a, a tale from something from the Civil War. Uh, even though that's a backdrop, you know, if, if you really look at The Gone with the Wind, you read the book, it's pretty obvious that it's really about somebody that they can't put down their insecurities and, and therefore race for those superficial things, you, you know I mean, wealth and, and, and stature and station and all of that. And sometimes that's not enough either. And then sometimes if people realize that, they're like, they don't want to be around you anymore because they realize in the end, you don't even know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, how are you going to love somebody? How are you going to be loyal to somebody? You can't because you're only loyal, you know what I mean, to the to the dollar or, or to the gold. Or to, in this case, probably to the dress. <laughs> so um, that's really what that tale was about. But it, it still had a lot of historical significance in how she put it together in the Civil War and the American South. So what, what a hell of a book. All right. Next one. And you guys probably know a lot about this because unlike Margaret Mitchell... Uh, J.D. Salinger, I mean, he is known from one end to the corner to the other as somebody being recluse that didn't want to be bothered, that didn't care about anything. So he writes The Catcher in the Rye. Comes out in 1951, okay? It's about alienation and angst and rebellion and all those things that are good for teens. It's a, a teen book, so to speak, even though adults read it too, on how to come to uh, to uh, adulthood. He had a number of novellas and short sections, uh, short fiction collections that got put out too, but none of them were really successful. This is really the only book that, that really has made him uh, the writer that anyone has heard about. Didn't like doing interviews, never did, didn't care about any of that stuff. He was known to have a gun, uh, threaten people if they come bothering him, that left alone, they left him alone. But um, he is the, the classic one. I mean, I, I think he lived everything he was talking about in that book because he definitely did not care about, uh, you know, networking, having friends, talking to anybody, interviewing, anything. He just didn't really care. But it's practically required reading if you go to college, especially if you're in uh, creative writing. They always seem to, to foist that one on to you. Why? I don't know because, I'm, again, I'm from the city. I'm from the northeast and of America. This is not really a book that really caught our attention. To me, it was a lot like that movie, uh, The Breakfast Club, the same thing. Uh, it's kind of hard to, you know, to grasp onto somebody that has everything, living in the suburbs in a school that actually has all it's supposed to have, and I'm in the city over here that doesn't have all that, and somehow I'm supposed to make a connection with this. Not so easy to do, you know? So it, it never it never really caught my, uh, my eye or my heart at all. I mean, lots of people did. I read it once, I said, what the hell is this all about? And I didn't care. So, who knows if I would have uh, really loved anything else he wrote, but I didn't bother because I, I just thought it was a little bit too much for me. It just I didn't really see the, you know, the, the value in that regard. Okay, nothing against the guy. You know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with the book. It's just, for me, it didn't, it didn't work for me. Okay? All right. Here's one that my people might not be really uh, familiar with, okay? All right, and we'll go over to that one right now. Okay. 
Ross Lockridge Jr. He wrote Raintree County. Many people consider this like the ultimate great American novel. Okay, they made a movie adaption of it with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. What is it with Elizabeth Taylor hanging out with gay guys? It just seems to be like her entire life story or something. Montgomery Clift was one of those uh, guys that never came out of the closet, but he was one of those. Uh, a very successful um, a movie adaption, by the way. It's a Civil War epic. Okay, this one literally over a thousand pages long. Okay. It went from the Civil War all the way to the labor move of the 1920s. It's told through the eyes of some character named John Johnny Shaughnessy. Okay? Follows him everywhere as he becomes a soldier, as he becomes a teacher, as he becomes an unsexual politician, then a playwright. Then he has all these different romantic relationships. He gets this thing published in 1948. All right? and he's only 33 years old. All right? He had, I guess you could say for him anyway... Uh, an extremely tormented time with the book because the publisher kept asking him to reduce the amount of it. Even the studios wanted him to reduce the amount of it so they can get this thing, uh, you know, put together as a as a, a movie adaption. It, it pained him to cut anything from the book. He, he wound up becoming psychologically uh, disturbed by it and then eventually becoming depressed. Okay, at this point, he gets the book published and now he has problems with his mental health. All right. Here's a man with a wife and four children, okay? He gets the book published a month later, all right, a month later. Connects the hose to his car, turns it on in the garage, and kills himself through carbon monoxide poisoning. Something I know about because I've seen it in Germany. I actually wrote a story that involved it, and it's, it's believe me, a, a dirty and horrible way to die, especially on those that find you. It's unbelievable. This is what this man does with a wife and four children because of the, the mental breakdown he had because of all the problems with this book. The only book the guy wrote, huge seller, big financial success, one of the, one of the, considered one of the great novels, Raintree County, Ross Lockridge Jr. So I'll try to keep that one in mind and if you get a chance to check it out, all right? Next, and I know a lot of you know about her, Sylvia Plath. A lot of people know that she was a poet and, and was, was suffering from mental illness and all kinds of depression and dealing with all kinds of things, okay? Funny enough, if you want to put it that way, she's one of the few poets that she wound up becoming famous from her poems as they were published in the various academic publications where people were talking about her and everything. But she really didn't hit it in terms of... Uh, a household word until she put out the one book that she ever did. A lot of people don't realize she only did one book called The Bell Jar. That was it. That was her only book. It's an auto-semi-biographical account of a mental breakdown of a character she wrote in there. Okay? Probably about herself because not long afterwards she commits suicide. I know. It, it's It's incredible. So um, there is somebody that definitely had a lot of passion and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but I, I can tell you just like some of the other ones we saw here that committed suicide, um, Confederacy of Dunces, you know, John Kennedy Toole, or even, um, you know, Ross Lockridge Jr., and now this one, in, in many essences, they knew that was the project they wanted to work on, that there's a good chance if they didn't work their way or went their way or something, they were going to kill themselves. It's almost like they knew this, and this is what they left for us, so... 
you have to wonder about that. And um, I just it happens so many times now in literature, and even on the on this particular show we were talking about for it to not just be a, a individual coincidences somewhere. I, I think there's unfortunately something to that. Sadly, I know. All right. Next, Ralph Ellison. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Ralph Ellison, he writes The Invisible Man in 1952. It's a gigantic success about an African man whose skin color renders him invisible in the early century of racial divide. It's an incredible book. I read it when I was a younger person. Uh, he, uh, he got a, a lot of praise from his critical essay collections he got out called Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory. But this was the book that made him. You know, he wound up becoming a teacher and a, a, a big influencer in, in social society. Obviously, somebody that uh, the civil rights, and I know Martin Luther King had, had re referenced the book. It was real. It's just a, an incredible a literary milestone, as they called it. Uh, Ralph Ellison, really, ultimately, his only novel and the only book that he ever wrote that, that had uh, any real uh, impact. And it's something that we'll, we'll be reading uh, for, for probably decades to come because it is that good. It is that interesting. It is that heartbreaking. And until one day, it's still a relevant book in the year 2020. All right. Now, here's somebody that we'll talk a bit on the show about. But I discovered so much more about him than I knew before that I'm going to wind up just doing a show about him uh, next year. Okay, so we'll, we'll touch upon some things, but there's just so much more I could not get into this show on this guy. But we'll definitely do it next year. We'll do a little recap of some of the stuff we talked about, and then from there we'll go on to some of the other things. But he's a hell of an interesting fellow. Boris Pasternak. So many things I didn't even know about as I was doing some basic research. When I put together a show like this, I often have an outline of who I want to talk about and some of the key things I know already. But I found out so much more, and I was just like, wow, this is so much I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that, that he was born in a Jewish family, but they wind up assimilating to become Russian Orthodox. They felt that would keep them out of trouble. And I'll tell you something, um, <laughs> for, for Mr. Pasternak, for some reason, this worked. This is Because this guy cannot be this lucky. I mean, it just worked. I'm just amazed by it. And we'll talk about that, how interesting that is. All right. A lot of people to this day, they know about Dr. Shivago. They've seen the movie. They read the book. It's required literature reading in Russia and in many, many colleges throughout the world. All right. But once they read the book and once they know the man's name, no one realizes that he's considered one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. Most people haven't even read him as a poetry before. I mean, I'm still shocked about that. I knew that he did some. I didn't know it was that influential. Really, really shocked by that. So when we do the other show, we'll definitely talk more about that because we need to hear more about that too. All right, so here's the interesting thing, all right? He comes from a, a well-to-do uh, Jewish family, okay? His, uh, his father was actually um, a musician and, and a professor uh, of music, and he wound up becoming... Um, uh, Boris Pasternak himself, he wanted to become a professor of literature and art in, in Russia, okay? He writes a couple of poetry books that really take people's attention, all right? Now, remember, because he's still considered Russian Orthodox, no one really gives him any, any flack as coming from a family that's Jewish. I'm, I'm just shocked for his entire life. I don't even find anything anti-Semitic against him. 
And it's just unbelievable, but it's true. He simply didn't practice that any longer and didn't make any issue for him. So therefore, it wasn't an issue for him. He had other issues to deal with, which, okay, I got you. All right, so the, um, the Bolshevik Revolution happens, okay? This is, you know, the communists taken over and after the royal family is deposed in Russia, all right? Unlike many of the artists back then, who feared communists because they kind of felt from some of the stuff they're talking about they were going to get screwed in that deal. They went over to the white Russian side of things. Some of them were tracked down and killed later on uh, as the uh, the communist movement became successful and, and you know started spreading out its wings. He decided not to go with them. He stood there in in Moscow. He stood there. He didn't move. He believed uh, that he'd be okay. He also believed that because for some reason. For a while, he was fascinated with the whole Bolshevik movement. He had a lot of friends that went over to that side. They wrote poems and stuff about it. He wrote at least one poem about a, a, a famous uh, a Bolshevik uh, by the name of, uh, let me see here, um, uh, Rima, yeah, Rima Ressa. Uh, and he wrote a poem about her, a moment in the memory of, of Ressa. She was a Bolshevik that died of, of what was it, um, typhoid, typhoid. Which is a strange irony without making any political jokes about somebody because making somebody's death a, a joke is never a good thing. But unfortunately, typhoid and, and famine and many things that went on in Russia during this thing were actually either purposely done by the communists or allowed because of, uh, of their horrible management of things. So she wound up dying from some of the things that was produced from her Vasily revolution and it wound up killing her. So a lot of his friends, when they come back, they get round up and arrested by Stalin. All right. He's now in charge, and he's he's going around killing all kinds of different people that are on an enemy list, so that he can make the side safer for the revolution that he wants to you know wants to continue with in his version of it, the Stalinist revolution. All right. He doesn't mention that past next a Jew, and you know Stalin was notoriously anti-Semitic. Doesn't care about that. Never mentions it to him. Okay. Kills lots of his friends. On one friend, he actually went over to the board over there, the writers' union, who was become communist, and said, "Listen, don't do this to this guy." Da 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 da, because this guy wound up writing a poem about Stalin that wasn't the uh, the best type of poem. Stalin wasn't too happy about that. Uh, I don't know what would possess anybody who kind of knows who these people are and what they're capable of doing. Knows that the people are being murdered. Knows that people who have been murdered. Knows that the people have been jailed. And knows that people have disappeared and no one knows anything. So yeah, what I normally do is I write a stupid poem about the dictator. Yeah. Cause I don't know what. I'm not saying you deserve to die, because you know I'm not. Against, I'm definitely against anyone trying to kill you for writing. But Jesus, can you not realize that that was exactly a bad idea? I mean, what the hell? But Pasternak's a good man. He tries to defend his friend. They pretty much tell him, "You probably should go home because there's a good chance that Stalin's going to reach out to your butt now because you're defending this guy." He goes home, tells his wife. His wife's like, are you nuts? Ring, ring, ring. He gets a phone call. <laughs> it's a pure girl. They're on the phone. They're like, uh, uh, can you hold on for Comrade Stalin? Literally, Boris Pasternak gets a phone call from Stalin, the man who's killed millions already. Okay, we haven't even gotten to World War II yet, right? He's already killed like a zillion people. 
He has a conversation with Pasternak, wants to know why he wants to be friends with this guy who apparently seems to be anti-communist. And he just says, I know the guy. The guy's smart. He's a friend of mine. We have different philosophies. We have different writing styles. So I'm not really defending the writing as much as I just don't think that anything should happen to him. Stalin tells this, tells this guy, Pasternak, oh, I see, you just don't want to stick up for your friends and hangs up the phone. <laughs> he tells his wife this. His wife's like, um, I don't know if it's point of trying to get out of town and that will look more guilty. I guess we just wait for them to come to arrest you. <laughs> Great, thanks. Uh, so um, they develop more of a list of the people that Stalin felt were enemies of his revolution. Okay, They have a literary list. All right, they have a small committee. They say, uh, "What about Pasternak?" Stalin says this. Incredibly enough, this man lives in the clouds. Just get him off the list. There's just no damn point. To this day, we don't really know because this is, this is the one of uh, one communication I'm talking about in this show. When we do a bigger show about him, you'll hear about others. We don't really know if Stalin just had some kind of like liking to Pasternak. We don't know if he just liked his writing secretly, didn't want to say anything about it. Because, you know, his writing wasn't anti-communist, by the way. Until he did Dr. Shafago, which actually Stalin never read and was actually one that published after Stalin died. So Stalin didn't know anything about that. He just knew about his poetry. He liked it. It seemed very patriotic. It seemed very Russian-based. seemed very... But he never admitted publicly he liked it. Or he liked this guy. But so for some reason, Pasternak... Nothing happened to him up until the point of producing Dr. Zhivago, which they were very unhappy with, the communists, after Stalin, after he died. He got it published in Italy. When they found out about it, they rejected it. They said, you're rejecting socialist realism, so therefore you're really becoming an enemy of the state. At that point, he really thought he was going to get rounded up and arrested. Don't know why, but they never did. In fact... He wind up first getting criticized by the Russians because of the book not being pro-communist enough. Actually, it wasn't communist at all. It wasn't even pro-anything. In many ways, it kind of looked down on him a bit. Um, and then Israel was very unhappy with him, strangely enough. They, uh, they had thought that uh, his book really promoted too much of the, uh, the assimilation to Russian orthodoxy. Because remember, he, he did originally come from a Jewish family. That kind of like kinsed on their, on their nerves about that. Uh, he said, and as a record, and we'll talk about this greater in the other show, but he said, no matter, I'm above race. He goes, I'd rather have Jews assimilate to Christianity than become atheists and communists. That's pretty much how he defended it. Whether there's any merit to what he's saying or not, or if he's just being defensive, heck if I can tell you. But that that's exactly what he said, though. So... They wind up throwing him out of the Union of Soviet Writers. They never came and arrested him, but they tried to take away his living. He wind up just doing a lot of translations of various uh, other artists. Um, he's very well known for translating a lot of Shakespeare's praise into Russia. And to this day, 2020, they still do a lot of the Russian Shakespeare plays uh, from the translation from Pasternak. It's just... It's become that standard. So it was really, uh, really interesting how he did that. So he goes from somebody being romantically fascinated with communism to somebody who's like, this is, this is crap. But he's a complicated man. Uh, the man, in the end, does not side against communism 
because it's killing Jews, uh, because it's killing other people who don't agree with it, uh, because it's killing capitalism and, and hurting people's lives. <laughs> no, he actually, his principle, and maybe Stalin was right about it, maybe his head was in the clouds. Uh, Pasternaga ultimately is against communism because he feels that it cannot provide the kind of free environment that's necessary for, a, for an artist or writer. Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. But that was, that was why he was against them. Different reasons for other people. He wind up um, uh, getting the Nobel Peace Prize. And then, of course, the, the 1965 film adaption made him universally known. Uh, Russia wanted him to decline the Nobel Peace Prize. And his wife convinced him to say no to it. Because she's feeling that for sure they were going to come and kill them all. Uh, he wound up getting it um, that praise prize to his family after he died years later, I think in the 80s. But um, he, he, he declined it, wrote them a letter because he, he wanted to listen to what his wife had to say. People were upset about him. A lot of writers like back then. But remember, Pasternak is an interesting fellow. He never leaves Russia. He never goes to, uh, to hide somewhere around the world, even though he knows the government is evil and it's a bunch of crap and what they're doing to him is wrong and everything else. He stays there to the end until he dies of lung cancer. Apparently he's a heavy smoker. <laughs> there we go. Boris Pasternak. Dr. Shivago. We'll definitely have more about that on another show because this is so much. It's, in it's incredible. Okay? All right. And the last one on the show, and it's a good way to end the show too as well, will be Harper Lee. To Kill a Mockingbird. All right? It's a story about uh, a family in a small town in Alabama where she came from, dealing with racism, the loss of innocences, and of course, even, you know, the, the various classes. You know, you're in this class versus that class. Of course, an enormous about of racism as well. It's considered one of the most beloved books in American history. Okay, here we go. Um, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 1961. She won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the National Medal of the Arts. Remember, folks, on one book and only one book all of these things no one's ever done all this before in one book it's incredible the library journal says that the kill and is the best one of the best novels of the century of the 100 ones they had it was one of the best 100 novels of the entire century she was um, a good friend of Truman Compote. If you know anything about him, he's a southern writer who happens to be gay. He wound up messing around too much in the, in the rumor mill and all that stuff and between alcohol and everything and wound up really ruining his, his career and his life. But he became famous for a, a big uh, crime book called In Cold Blood. She helped do the research with him on that book. She also helped write the screenplay adaption. Didn't get any credit for it. She let the, the original writer who did it, Horton Foote, he won the Oscar for that screenplay in 1962. Gregory Peck, who, who became the lawyer on that show, uh, won the Oscar for lead actor all right, in 1963. Uh, good friends to her to the day she died. Always respected the stuff, stuff she was doing. Um, Harper Lee is definitely one of the more interesting complex characters because she is on the side of J.D. Salinger in terms of not giving too many interviews, although he didn't give any. She she wanted to be left alone, but in many instances, she did come out and do some things. Not as much as you would think for somebody as famous as she was. She did some interviews. She did uh, some art shows and, and things like that to talk about things. Not a lot, but enough to, to have a little bit of a record. 
But she, for the most part, she didn't want to do anything else, and she didn't do anything else. Uh, if you recall, it wasn't but a few years after her death, they published A Ghost of the Watchmen, but they thought this was going to be her second novel. Uh, it wasn't. Unfortunately, it turns out that that was simply a rough first draft of... of uh, of the killer mockingbird so it really doesn't count so really she did just write the one book uh, she gave one of her last interviews when someone gave it to her when she was in a nursing home and was, she was ill and they asked her about you know all the stuff that went on and why she didn't do this and why she didn't check about that and this that and whatever and, and she had the quote it really i think encapsulates this episode and some of the feelings that a lot of these writers had had and harper lee says this when they asked him why haven't you done more books I have said what I wanted to say, and I will not say it again. That's her quote. And it really probably goes for a lot of these writers that, that really had that feeling. Again, another book about uh, the, her passion, about her small town, about her family, about some of the things she saw about people being treated poorly because they were black, and, and how that needed to be stopped, and how that was just ultimately wrong. And um, she, uh, she really did... Um, change the way people sort of looking at things another book from the south ironically a couple of these things if you think about it rain tree county is from the south uh, the killing bacamoth is from the south america and of course so is gone with the wind so and they're all written by um southern writers and all of them that's pretty much their main book <laughs> it's pretty something else it really is but i i really uh, i really enjoyed the book i really didn't care for the movie as much it to me it just seemed kind of stale and i don't know maybe slow i just for some reason i didn't care for the movie i just liked the book we all all have read it as americans it's just one of those books you, you can't get away from reading it's required somewhere wherever you go in some school system yeah so you're gonna you're gonna be checking it out and of course it has enormous significance as well all right that folks until then the next episode which will be um uh, the one we do on pledging, writing as a pledge, that'll be it for this one. Episode 171, writing as passion. This is Chance to be Human. This is Mark Rossi. Uh, and a little interesting side note here. This is the first show I've done since I've done this this uh, podcast where I didn't do it on my traditional um, microphone and uh, a computer equipment, but I'm actually doing this on a, on a mini recorder that converts things into an MP uh, file. Uh, MPEG file, um, no MP3 file. That's what they call it. Yeah, and then I'll then I'm going to get bring it into the computer and touch it up and everything and, and release it. So that, just a little interesting side note. Wanted to see how that worked. I'm going to have times now and then when I want to try to do that because you know, especially with the holidays and if you got people doing different things, you got the kids over here almost out of school. Everybody's making noise and so I let them take over the bedroom and the, and the TV and I'm in here in, in the office over here uh, doing this uh, on the mini recorder. Hopefully it came out decent. All right. Until next time, folks, God bless and thank you for Strength to Be Human. Your host, Mark Anthony Rossi.
Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.